The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. People get seduced by this moment, a moment where you believe you have decided something, you've chosen vanilla ice cream over chocolate, and it just feels so intuitive. And for most people, that's sort of the open and shut case there that you just displayed free will. And from where I'm coming from, that's missing 99% of what's actually going on. Where did that intent come from in the first place? If you don't ask that question, that's like you're trying to review a book and all you've done is read the last three pages of it. Because what's really interesting is how did you become the person who you are, the sort of person who would intend to choose strawberry over chocolate? How'd that happen? That's Robert Sapolsky. And if you think you choose strawberry over chocolate on a last-minute whim, then you're in for a surprise. Robert's new book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And in it, he sets out to convince you, and in our conversation convinced me, that free will is an illusion. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think you say in your book that your goal is to convince the reader that there's no free will at all. But you'll be satisfied, you'll settle (laughs) for someone thinking that there's a lot less free will than we imagine. Is that roughly what you hope to do with the book? Yeah, yeah. I I recognize I'm kind of out on the lunatic fringe (laughs) and believing that there's no free will at all. Um, So as long as I convince people there's less of it, I'm good, especially less of it when they're thinking about sort of every major important moment in their lives and how they judge people. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for getting people halfway there. Well, I am already at that first stage. I've come to believe that there's a lot less free will than most of us imagine. But no free will at all takes some work on me. How about an experiment where we see if you can convince me that there's no free will at all by the time we finish our conversation. (laughs) Okay. And I should say, even though like I'm off yelling about this, I find it very hard to accept most of the time also. So this is, this is not an easy sell. Um, But the way I think about it is people get seduced by this moment, a moment where you believe you have decided something, you choose something, you've chosen vanilla ice cream over chocolate, and it just feels so in the moment and tangible, and you're so aware, I don't have to choose, I could choose the other one if I want, I have options, and here's the one that I want, that when we do that, and we do that, you know, a hundred times a day over things, um, it feels so 
so intuitive. And for most people, that's sort of the open and shut case there that you just displayed free will. And from where I'm coming from, that's missing 99% of what's actually going on. Because it's great that you formed an intent at that point and you consciously acted on it and you knew you didn't have to and you could have done something else. But it ignores everything else that has gone on in answering the question, oh yeah, where did that intent come from in the first place? And as far as I'm concerned, if you don't ask that question, that's like you're trying to review a book and all you've done is read the last three pages of it. Because what's really interesting is how did you become the person who you are, the sort of person who would intend to choose strawberry over chocolate? How'd that happen? So as I understand it, as I take it from your book, that there are layers going back what you were experiencing a few seconds before you thought you made the decision, what what you were experiencing this morning, what you had for breakfast, whether you have an upset stomach, whether you were comfortable in your mother's uterus. What, <laughs> it goes back and back, right? There, there are these, there, it, you have a handy way of noting the different layers, which is the story of the turtles, which I've heard a number of different ways. What's your favorite version of that story? Um, mine is with... William James. So it seems William James, philosopher, psychologist, was giving a lecture on the nature of the universe. And afterward, this old woman came up to him and said, Professor James, you have it all wrong. And he said, oh, yes, how so? And she said, the world is actually on the back of a gigantic turtle. And he said, okay, but where does that turtle stand? And she said, on another turtle. And bemused, he said, oh, but madam, where does that turtle? And she said, it's no use, Professor James. It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) And that's this metaphor for why did this happen just now? Because of what became came before. And why did that happen? Because of what came before that. And it's turtles all the way down. So what are some of those turtles? Because they really do extend from us in the previous few seconds to us in the previous few millennia or many millennia. Let me give you three examples coming from different time points in that whole span. One of them is occurring seconds before you act. Sit somebody down and have them fill out a questionnaire about their political views. Have them come back a month later And have them fill out a similar questionnaire, except this time, the room they're sitting in smells. It smells terrible. It smells of rancid garbage. And the person sits there. And if somebody is smelling a bad smell at the time, on the average, they become more socially conservative. It does nothing to their economic views, nothing to their geopolitics. They're just much more likely to say, ooh, Something is making me feel disgusted. I know what it is. It's those people when they do that thing that's very different. Not only is it different, it's wrong, 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 and it shouldn't be allowed. And it's all because this part of your brain that does sensory disgust somehow also got saddled with doing moral disgust, and it confuses the two. And you're sitting there making a moral judgment And if you said to that person, hey, that's really interesting. You know, a month ago when you filled out that questionnaire, 
Um, you said, you know, this act should be legal. And now you're saying it's le it should be illegal. What happened? They're not going to say, because this room smells terrible. They're going to say, oh, I thought about it and I saw this report and this article in the Wall Street Journal or whatever. They're going to be inventing an attribution for the fact that a part of your brain that tells you you're eating rancid food has trouble distinguishing that from deciding it's a rancid smell or it's a rancid moral system. So that's just in the seconds before. And conversely, put somebody in a room that smells of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies, and they become more generous in their charitable decisions immediately afterward. So yeah, that's all occurring in a minute, a minute before you behave. How far do they swing? I mean, is somebody far on the left going to react to the rancid smell totally to the right? and vice versa from the far right to the far left. Some people must not move at all. I can't, it's hard to believe. Yeah, well, you, you don't exactly turn a Bolshevik into a neocon just from the smell. Um, the average person, it shifts them a little bit, mm. which is to say, you sure can't prove that there's no free will based on the fact that a bad smell makes people on the average a little bit more socially conservative. That's just one of the pieces of it. Okay, here's another piece. So your fetus, your fetus, and how stressed is mom? Which is to say, how high are the levels of stress hormones in her bloodstream, which are going to get across the placenta and get into your brain and have all sorts of meaningful influences on your brain being constructed at the time, such that if you have a mother who was chronically stressed during pregnancy, she was homeless. She's poor, domestic violence, who knows what, clinically depressed, that's another one that fits in that. Um, as a result, stuff in the programming of your brain is going to be such that on the average, as an adult, a part of your brain called the amygdala, which has to do with fear and anxiety and stress, is going to be bigger than average. And what happens when this part of the brain is bigger? you tend to see threats that other people don't. Mm. You have trouble telling when things are now safe, when the danger is over. This is the nuts and bolts of an anxiety disorder, of, of preemptive aggression, of things like, all from what was going on when you were a fetus, and nobody asked you whose womb you were going to land in. So that was back to then. So that could explain some of the behavior of somebody who goes into road rage when somebody cuts him off. Yeah. That, but it has to be added to a lot of other factors, a lot of other turtles, I guess. Absolutely. And okay, so now we've just gone from like one minute before to back when you were a fetus. Push it even further back. I love this study. What were your ancestors doing 500 years ago? What was the infectious disease load that your ancestors were dealing with? Were they being mowed down by contagious diseases? Were there relatively few of them? All of that. And what you see is a culture in which there's a lot of infectious disease does not like strangers because mm. who knows what strangers are bringing in and cultures dealing with high infectious disease loads generate a lot of cultural hostility to outsiders. And five centuries later, the degree of infectious disease load your ancestors were dealing with is one of the many contributors to what your attitudes are towards immigration. 
No. <laughs> How in hell does that work? Because that culture five centuries ago was influencing how they got raised four centuries ago, which influenced how they got raised three centuries, which influenced how you got raised within minutes of birth, because there's that cultural imprint that starts like the second they decide what counts as like desirable mothering. So one second before, 500 years before, if you want to get into like, a hundred million years before, while we want, why we wound up being a species where some of us are a whole lot better at monogamy than others. There's a hundred million year old explanation for that one. All of this contributes, yeah. And when you look at all those pieces and how they each merge into each other, that's all there is. There's no room in there to come in and say, yeah, 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 but you just made that decision independently of all that stuff. So here's my question. All of those layers, all of those turtles, I can see having an effect, one on top of another. But it seems to me you're saying that the awareness that you have of making the decision, even though the decision has mostly been made, or you feel entirely made, under the hood, isn't the experience of making the decision and how you evaluate the decision in that moment an element that would become one of the turtles in the future. Absolutely. Your is is going to be a was at some point. And if in your is, you just decided to leap in the river and save the drowning child and pull him out of there and all of that, or if in that moment you decided to run the other way and pretend you didn't see you now have changed your brain because your brain now bears the history of you turned out to be the kind of person who would do this or who would do that. And that's there forever after. Here's an example. Uh, you're, you're a movie guy. So you and two other people have just gone to see this movie that's like totally inspiring about somebody who saves a whole bunch of people under some awful circumstance. And this was just some average Joe before doing that. And you walk out of there changed. You say, oh my God, that movie was so inspirational. I'm going to sign up to be a volunteer at a soup kitchen tomorrow. The person sitting next to you comes out of the movie changed. They say, oh my God, that was the most amazing cinematography. I'm going to go read up on this person who did the cinematography. And the third person comes out changed, saying, oh my God, that was the most emotionally manipulative, childish movie I've ever... I'm never <laughs> going to watch a movie by that guy again. Why the same experience in three... Because the three of you will have come into that moment being made by your prior history over which you had no control, turning you into the sort of person who would respond to this stimulus in this particular way instead of that particular way. And as a result of responding to that stimulus that way, you will now leave an echo in your brain that, oh, I responded to it that way that time. And yeah, it turned out I liked working in the soup kitchen. Or it turned out that guy was kind of a poser. He really wasn't that great of a cinematographer. Or, yes, it just adds to the file of things that have gone on before that have made you who you are now in the present. So it still seems to me as if you're backing up a little bit from saying that 
the uh, awareness of making the decision is a factor, is one of the influences. It sounds like what, where we are now is that all the decision-making does is confirm what was happening underneath the surface that made me make the decision, and it just adds to the mix in the most passive way. That it's in a way just a screen, a to- toad board recording who won the race. The race was a bunch of horses, all different yeah. impulses from different experiences with different turtles. And now here is here's my decision. I'm making my decision, but all it's doing is telling me, here's what you decided, Schmo. <laughs> and and live with it and convince yourself you actually chose that. Now, consciousness comes in in interesting ways, which is where like you realize you're dealing with humans instead of like orangutans or something, which is Okay, so suppose someone does this classic social psychology study on you where you ask people, you show someone like five different brands of laundry detergent, and you ask them, which is your favorite? Which do you like using? And what was shown was if the person was just sitting in a room with a picture of the ocean or there was background music with the sound of waves or something, people become more likely to say, Tide. Tide (laughs) is my favorite. Okay, so that one was totally unconscious. But suppose you're sitting there, and consciousness and the type of person you have become makes you say, they're up to something here. Tide, Tide is my favorite, but I'm not going to say Tide. I'm going to say just the opposite. Whoa, did you exercise free will there? No, you were determined in a completely different way. Circumstances made you such that you would sit there skeptically and wonder what these people were up to, and it made you contrarian enough that you would get like a perverse pleasure out of screwing up their data by giving exactly the opposite (laughs) answer. And that was just as... If you wind up exactly like your parents, that's evidence of determinism, If you wind up saying, God, help me if I wind up like them, and you wind up the exact opposite of them, it was just as deterministic. It was different determining factors. Or if you wind up partially like them, but you're like this influential teacher you had in fifth grade, that's just a different picture of how you were made by stuff you had no control over. When we come back from our break, Robert Sapolsky makes a remarkable assertion. Although it's one that he says is inevitable given his dismissal of free will, that none of us should be held accountable for our actions, whether they're good actions or bad. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. 
P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Robert Sapolsky and his determined belief that we, all of us, himself included, put too much stock in the idea that we have free will. I'm interested in the upshot of all of this, because while this is an interesting and fun exploration that we're having, in the real world, it has some outcomes that are maybe not expected and not not wanted necessarily. For instance, you say in your book that since there's no free will, I'm paraphrasing, of course, that you can't really blame people for what they do and you can't really praise them for what they do. You can't pay someone more because they're better at their work, right? Because they just, that's all the turtles on top of them. So what about that? You can't praise people. Why not? Okay, because they didn't earn it. Um, (laughs) All I have to do is look at the fact that virtually none of my wonderful Stanford students sitting there in my classrooms grew up protein malnourished in Niger grew up living on the streets and were never taught how to read because they were a street kid in in Rio de Janeiro, grew up with parents who just wanted them to go into the military. They are way more likely than chance to have had parents who hugged them and read stories to them. And you go across town from Palo Alto to East Palo Alto and go into the prison there. And it's not by chance that the guys in there are far more likely than my Stanford students to have been witness to physical and psychological abuse growing up. And we have this myth that people generally get what it is they deserve, whether it's out of self-indulgence or heartlessness or discipline and gumption or whatever. But the reality is we're running this world where we think it is okay to treat some people better than average for reasons having nothing to do with them and some people worse than average for reasons having nothing to... And when you look at it, not only does criminal justice make no sense at all, meritocracies make no sense either. Am I right that you don't feel that punishment is morally correct, given the fact that people are under the influence of many things we can't determine? Absolutely. And likewise, giving people bonuses in their corporations are, are morally indefensible because they're both predicated on the notion that this person deserves that, that the word deserve deserves to even be in the conversation, and it doesn't. If a person can sell more tires than anybody else in the neighborhood, do they deserve more money for that? Nah. Shouldn't be a well-paying job. Everybody should get the same amount of money because they're doing what they can do. Well, this, this sounds like a theory that hasn't worked uh, yet. Oh, no, it has not worked very well, but it has worked in some realms, though. It seems like intuitively ridiculous right now that we would pay tire salesmen and garbage collectors and neurosurgeons the same salary. Yet, I bet if you and I were sitting around 300 years ago in the U.S. and we were the same people we are now, but in that setting— Um, it would have seemed intuitively obvious to us that some people are meant for slavery. And in fact, they're so incapable of taking care of themselves that you're doing them a favor. 
And somehow what seemed intuitively obvious about that one changed over time. And that one we don't have to think about anymore. And maybe 300 years from now, the notion that you pay somebody more money because through circumstances completely out of their control, they have more neurons that could do this, the neurons that could do that, that they think of themselves as a better person, that they get to cut in line when it comes out to life, sort of luxuries and stuff. That's going to seem as absurd as like slavery seems to us now. We're just in the wrong time period now. It seems to me that the same thing is true in reverse. And try to talk me out of this if you can. <laughs> the idea that we're the product of our previous experiences going back millennia. It's hard for me to distinguish that from the caste system or even racism itself. That you're what you are because of where you came from and I'm not going to expect anything more from you. Well, that sort of taps into one of the one of the other great sort of sources of apoplexy for people who who say there's free will, what are you talking about? Which is this mistake that when you talk about sort of the determinism of neurons and stuff, um, that what you're actually being is some pilgrim with buckles on their shoes talking about Calvinist predeterminism. Mm -hmm. um, a notion of like biological determinism, the type I'm like flogging here, um, is completely compatible with change. The assumption or the conclusion that, oh, if everything's determined, nothing can change. Things change enormously. Things change dramatically. People who were vicious, you know, racists about this change into something like that. Cultures change, blah, blah, all of that. Or you go into a movie and you were changed into being someone who the next day is going to volunteer for a soup kitchen. Change happens. You mentioned teaching your students. Prompts me, I guess along with many other things that prompt me that I'm not aware of at the moment. <laughs> it prompts me to ask you why you teach. Do you think you're doing something useful or do you just do it because it's fun? Well, I like to think it's useful. It's certainly fun. I happen to love teaching. Um, it's almost obliged in my tribe to bitch and moan about how much you have to teach and just get me back to the lab. Um, but I actually love teaching. I teach more than I'm required to do. So why do I do that? I don't know, all sorts of reasons. My my father was a professor. He was an architectural historian. And I went to a few of his lectures and I thought he was amazing. And he was charismatic, which he wasn't the rest of the time. And he seemed happy, which he rarely was the rest of the time. And whoa, this is the way, this is what worked for him. Maybe this will work for me. And he wanted me to go be a doctor and be a professor of pathology. And no way in hell was I doing that. So I became a different type of professor who teaches a different subject. But I spent junior high school feeling like a total dork and loser and somehow being able to stand up in front of a bunch of people and they'll pay attention to what you're saying because it's going to be on the final makes me feel like I'm not such a dork anymore. And all these reasons going into it and thus here I turned into the sort of person who likes to teach. It makes me wonder about a couple 
where the husband says to the wife, I love you. And she says, yes, so you can't help it. So what? And he says, well, I'm just saying. It kind of takes a little of the air out of it. It takes a little of the air out of all of that. Oh, my God. What if we're attracted to each other just because of how we smell? Like, is that the... (laughs) Although I have to admit, like every primate on earth other than us is completely puzzled by like online dating. You can fall in love with somebody now and you don't even know what their pheromones smell like. This is like bizarre from a primate's perspective. This is really quite strange. But yeah, like it makes love suspect. It makes murder suspect in terms of deciding where it came from. It made your incredible resume suspect. It made your Mother Teresa-like angelic traits suspect. If what you've decided is, I'm the one who caused all that. I'm the one who deserves the credit. You have an anecdote in your book that in this moment makes me think it's relevant to what we're talking about. How people can influence others' sort of different behavior. You were driving in your car, and a a car ahead of you had a bumper sticker that said, perform a random act. What was a random act of kindness? Do do a random, yeah. Do a random act of kindness. kindness today. And a second later, you had a chance to either do that or not do it. Yeah. I looked at the bumper sticker and I said, oh, that's sweet. That's nice. I bet it's, I bet the person in there is someone I would like. I bet they even give money to, to national public radio or something like that. <laughs> and like then, you know, I thought about something else. And 10 seconds later, somebody signaled that they want to like move into the lane in front of me. And of course, my first thought was, you son of a bitch, you are not getting, I'm important. I got to, I'm late for this meeting. I'm not, if I do this, I'm going to feel like a seventh grade dork again if I let you in a, And then I thought of the bumper sticker and said, oh, okay. And I like carried out a motor behavior. I moved my foot from the gas to the brake and slowed down. And what amazes me is like, it's not that much of a challenge to figure out the exact neuronal circuitry that went from my seeing that bumper sticker and what associations that was embedded in into my saying, no, actually, don't be a jerk. Slow, let the guy in. Work the bumper sticker. That bumper sticker was your own personal turtle. <laughs> yes. The only thing is, you might have been momentarily, for some reason, under the influence of other turtles that are available to you because they're swimming around in your brain, which would have said, that corny bumper sticker? I don't think so. Exactly. I'm not going to be manipulated by yeah, like right. Buddhist nonsense like that. Yeah, it's who I was at that moment, how I was going to respond to that. It brings up in my mind the question, to what extent, if any extent, you're coming to the conclusion that there's no free will at all. How has that changed your life in any way? Um, way, way too little. Because most of the time, I'm absolutely incapable of functioning like as if any of this is the case, because it's really hard. I mean, from where I stand for a very long time, I see it as intellectually the only acceptable thing and morally the only acceptable thing to function in life without praising or blaming or punishing or rewarding and feeling special because of anything else. 
And yeah, I can do that maybe like for 30 seconds once every other month or so. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard because I'm a person of my time and place and there's a lot of intuitions I need to overcome. Well, I have to say you've moved me a step or two closer to what you wanted. But that may only be because it's been in the last 30 seconds. I don't know. <laughs> and I like your face. <laughs> I'll settle for that. Okay. Most people don't. So hell, I'll run with it. And I had nothing to do with it. We end our show with seven quick questions, which we probably did the last time you were on. But maybe, in fact, probably your answers have changed since I asked you the last time. Totally, because I've got like gastrointestinal pressure right now or something. And it's going to be completely different. <laughs> Okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Um, math. So I could understand emergence and complex systems oh, and chaoticism. When you do understand that, come back and tell me about it. Yeah, that's it. And that's not happening soon. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Okay, interpersonally, I'm a total avoidant wimp. So what I would do is say, that's totally great. That's, you know, that, that's fantastic. Here's, here's how you could be even more accurate. Parentheses, say the opposite of everything you just said. <laughs> that's a technique that when directors use it on me, I find extremely effective. Because <laughs> I think I just have to change the part he hates, which is everything. Which is everything. But, but he doesn't put it that way. Other than that. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I would say, in some ways, the most insightfully strange, uncomfortable one. Um, we didn't talk about this at all, but part of what I've spent my life doing, in addition to brain stuff, is studying wild baboons in the National Park in East Africa. Went there on and off for 30 years, doing field work, blah, blah, looking at what social behavior there has to do with your how your body deals with stress. And after decades of work, what I concluded was if you're like a male baboon and you want to have low blood pressure and you're being given a choice in the matter, have friends rather than being high ranking. Social support, social affiliation, all of that's great. And one time I was going through this song and dance in the lecture and someone afterwards said, don't you think it's sort of puzzling that you've spent 30 summers of your life living alone in a tent. And the main thing that you've learned is like sociality is a good thing for primates. That may not have been strange, but that sure was insightful. But it didn't take into account all the friends you'd made among the prime, the other primates. Yes, yes, yes. But they were not reliable. <laughs> right. All right. Next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Or better yet, how do you deal with a compulsive talker? Space out, daydream, Think about laundry. <laughs> it comes in handy, laundry. Right. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met. How do you begin a genuine conversation? I'll say, so what, what are you about? How do you wind up here? Huh. I once was at some fancy dinner and was sitting next to somebody who apparently is like a famous poet. And I asked him, so what? what is it that you actually do as a poet? And he told me, I explore the space between is and isn't. I said, what the hell is that? 
So then I started talking to the person on the other side of me. <laughs> now, I was going to say, that sounds like a perfect conversation stopper. Oh, my God. But on the other hand, I guess it's not too hard to say, what do you mean by that? That sounds a little crazy. <laughs> the trouble is he probably would have answered it, and then it would have <laughs> then, just then gotten worse. you were worse. talking to a compulsive talker. <laughs> yeah. Next to last, what gives you confidence? The capacity for nervous systems to change. I am by nature very, very pessimistic, but I even have to admit that things can get better now and then, and we can even begin to understand what things make that more likely to occur. Well, you got me to join you, at least in your hope. <laughs> Last question. What book changed your life? Three of them come to mind, but the one that probably did the most was... Okay, this book by the science writer James Glick called Chaos, hmm. uh, Revolution in Science, something or other, about chaoticism and chaos theory, which was this revolution that flew in in the 60s and completely upended something people had been thinking for like a thousand years, which is if you want to understand something complicated, break it down into its component parts and understand how the parts work. And once you've done that, put them back together, and now you understand how this complicated thing works. And what chaoticism basically is about is saying things don't work that way. The really interesting, complicated things out there, like people and societies and cells and stuff like that, work in a way where reductionism, breaking stuff down to its component parts, isn't going to get you there. And that, I was like a dead white male, just show me the reductive pieces of the neurobiological system I'm studying um, with, with a vengeance. And that actually really shifted my thinking about science. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation for me. I think you've shifted me a little bit. I just had fun talking with you. So that in itself, it's, it's like you having fun teaching. I had fun learning from you. Well, likewise, it is always a blast. And I, I know I say this every time, but I can't resist it. Just pointing out just the interesting irrelevance of the fact that your father and my father were classmates at Stuyvesant High School around 1920. I forgot that you told me that. And they were classmates. They knew each other. They Well, I, I went to Wikipedia and they were about the same age. I have no idea if they knew each other. They probably studiously avoided each other for some reason, <laughs> who knows what, but I was just so tickled pink the first time I found that out. Well, I am too. That's why that we, we ought to check it out a little more. <laughs> no wonder I like your face. <laughs> Thank right. you, Robert. Good. Take care, Alan. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Robert Sapolsky is a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University. And as you've just heard, he's also a great communicator. 
His classes at Stanford are among the most popular on the campus. And he's the author of a half dozen witty and fascinating books, including the book we talked about the last time he was a clear and vivid guest, Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. His new book is Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Terry Grice. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Irondale Ensemble Project. Founded in response to the 2015 death of Eric Garner at the hands of New York City police officers, Irondale created a program to help police and community build trust and mutual understanding. We were always looking for what else does theater do? We took on more and more impossible projects in order to keep testing this notion of does it have meaning, does it have relevance, how can it be used, how can somebody who's not interested in acting at all still benefit by not only watching theater, but by doing theater. Terry Grice, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.